Hello, and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing the film Stranger Than Fiction, the K-drama Romance is a Bonus Book, the story The Bookmaking Habits of Select Species by Ken Liu, and The Unstrung Harp by Edward Gorey. And welcome to episode 93, The Glamorous Authorial Life. I'm Alex, and if I were anything but a writer in the publishing industry, I apparently, according to my fellow serpents, <laughs> would be a good marketing person. I don't know that I agree with that. I'm Freya, and I would definitely be an editor. 100%. And I'm Macy, and I would be a program manager of Doom. I think that you'd be a great agent, actually. Like, it would because you can talk to much. anyone. The, so mm. I, I, I have the skills, but the thing is that, like, having as my income a thing that is impossible to predict would cause my brain to turn into cheese and dribble out my mm. ears. Like, I that's, have massive respect fair. for agents, but I know myself. It's not free. That's fair. <laughs> yep, that's that's right. absolutely legit. Well. We are actually three redheaded fantasy authors who are mostly glad to be authors and not other things. And and today, dear listeners, we're going to be complaining about the publishing industry. And I think like not so much complaining, like it's a fond, affectionate, affectionate kind teasing. of affectionate exasperation, <laughs> like you would at a younger sibling or a very annoying friend. Um, yeah. But before before we get into all of that, what are we reading, fellow serpents? I have been watching many Olympics, actually. Ooh, you have. Mm. I keep hearing you talk about them, and they sound very exciting when you talk about. Well, them. I'm as a figure skater. I am mostly involved in in, in watching sports that involve sequence and music. So I have been extremely yep. into the rhythmic gymnastics and the artistic swimming. I think the artistic swimming has been my favorite thing to watch. It is incredible. Everyone who does it is amazing. Uh, so I highly recommend watching some of that if you have the ability to rewatch uh, various parts of the Olympics. Basically mermaid sport. Yeah, mermaid sport. But like there's so much upside down and they can hold their breath for so long and they're in incredible synchronization and also creative to music. So wonderful. Completely wonderful. Uh, I have also read Under the Whispering Door, which is the book by T.J. Clune, which is coming out later this year. This is a book about a man who dies and then realizes he's dead at his funeral when a reaper comes to take him to a sort of halfway house where he strikes up a begrudging friendship with the man who owns the tea house, who is meant to be preparing him to cross through a door to the other side. Uh, So it's a book that has a lot to do with grief and a lot to do with coming to terms with loss and death, obviously. So tread lightly if that's likely to be something you don't want to read about. But it's also, because it's a TJ Klune book, a lovely found family narrative and it has a queer romance. And it's a very light touch for a heavy subject and really nicely put together. I also got around to reading a short story collection that I bought many, many, many years ago at a convention and have only just finished reading, and that is The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories by Ken Liu. I I have that anthology. It is really good. good. The Paper Menagerie won all the awards when it came out, but a lot of the other stories in the collection are fantastic as well. I will say, and I don't usually do content warnings for 
the books that I've read, but this one in particular, this collection has a lot to do with torture and war crimes and like medical mm-hmm. experimentation on prisoners. And some of the, some of it gets mm-hmm. quite dark and quite heavy and graphic in terms of what it shows. They're all excellent stories. And you'll sort of know when you hit those stories, it's pretty well telegraphed, but just as a bit of a warning, because I think I probably would have needed a bit of a warning for some of them going in because mm-hmm. I'm not mm-hmm. great with torture in stories. And I had to skim past quite a lot. But otherwise, an excellent collection. Really, really good. Like, his writing is incredible. And I also read Sorrowland by Rivers Solomon, which came Ooh. out recently. Uh, you said there were mushrooms, right? Yes. It does fungus bullshit, which I was not expecting and was yes. quite excited to see. It's on the cover. I, I didn't pay attention. No, oh no. Actually, no, we have a different <laughs> cover. The, oh. the um, Commonwealth has a different cover, so there's no fucky fungus on the front or if there is it's probably stylized enough that i didn't notice so it does some fungus stuff uh it's about running away from a cult to live in the woods with your babies and try to survive and becoming stronger than you were meant to be and uncovering history it's and it's wonderful river solomon does incredibly good writing as ever so that was good lots of lots of fungus yep (laughs) what about you macy uh (laughs) Meanwhile, Macy has probably read another 1.5 million words of fanfic or so. I read a whole bunch of Guardian. I sorted all of the threesome fics on OT on the AO3. All um, the threesome fics. Kudos, all of them by like sort, but filter by complete, sort by kudos, um, and then like above 60,000 words. And I read like five of those um, for no apparent reason, including one in Vikings fandom. Um, and a really good Neil Caffrey OT3, um, and some BTS, which always confuses me because they don't mean us because that would be weird. Mm, right. They mean right, the other right. BTS. I was going to say, if you sorted <laughs> by kudos on AO3 for threesome fic and found fic about us, I would be oh, simultaneously God. charmed and weirded out. <laughs> Dear listeners, this is not a challenge. This is not a challenge. We love you, but no. Um, Please don't tell us about it, as is the usual rule for RPF. Don't tell the subjects ever. Anyway, other than that, I have... Rest in peace, Macy's ability to read books. It has been at least two months now. I read three pages of a book today and then, like, reconsidered all of my life choices and had to lie on the carpet for a bit because books... Mm. But um, in yep. other news, I accidentally now own 32 eggs um, and derailed the Serpent Cast chat earlier. What do you do with 32 eggs? See, when you s- Well, they keep for a long time if they're refrigerated and you could make soufflés and you could make angel food cake and you could make hollandaise sauce but and there's many all of that. Cake. that sounds delicious. Yeah. But also... Or you could give some to your neighbors. I could. Mm. I could just show up at my neighbors with basket with like a jug of hollandaise sauce. Or eggs and let them decide what they want to do. Although the anyway. way you began that with just sort of having suddenly acquired 32 eggs makes me think it was some kind of weird like black market thing. Are they dragon eggs? Did you rob a nest? There was like a weird, I have a vegetable box curse, okay? There was a Schrodinger's vegetable box, and anyway, dear listeners, this is what I'm talking about because I haven't read anything. Instead of reading things, I have been spontaneously generating eggs. Alex, please Mm. save me. Sure, yes, I would love to save you, Macy. (laughs) Um, So I've been reading yet more Victoria Goddard books, that's all, because she has like 13... 
She has like 13 books published. And frankly, I think at this, at, if I keep going at the current rate, I may be able to just keep saying I read a Victoria Goddard book this, this <laughs> for week the for the rest of the podcast. Amazing. Excellent. Amazing. You're going to have to pace yourself to one every two weeks then. Yeah, we'll see. Anyway, um, so I read Black Current Fool and uh, I started reading Love in a Mist, both of which are in the Green Wing and Dart series, which is that sort of fantasy setting with like kind of Connie Willis's to say nothing of the dog mm. like two gentlemen home from university and they have adventures and one of them kills a dragon and <laughs> there's a, a moment in one of the books where it suddenly becomes like a riff on the Great British Bake Off which is great <laughs> and let me tell you about Black Current Fall because Black Current Fall is where it really starts popping off. There's a whole long extended sequence where they're trapped in a magical labyrinth. Slight spoilers, but this won't spoil the whole thing. And they're using like legitimate literary analysis of a poem in order to like escape. It's brilliant. It's very, very good. Highly recommend it. Um, I also have been doing a lot of fiber arts this week. I finished knitting a lacework shawl. Um, I started learning how to make bobbin lace um, using uh, disassembled clothespins rather than bobbins because I'm cheap and I didn't want to invest like many dollars on supplies before I even knew whether I liked mm. doing this. Um, and like since I've been doing fiber arts, that also means I've been listening to things. I discovered a cool YouTube channel called Ask a Mortician, uh, which is really nifty. She has like a great uh, sense of humor and she's very like death positive in the sense of like she educates people about death and she thinks that we as a culture have kind of like gotten separated from the idea of death and mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. that we don't often get to experience how empowering it can be to take care of our loved ones who have passed on. And she's very funny. So she does like, videos about like famous deaths um and like weird corpses and uh is very like empathetic mm. and kind and sensitive in the the topics that she talks about so uh highly she's, recommend she's that as books. well i think i've read one of them is that caitlin doughty yes 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 um she read a book called smoke gets in your eyes which is quite famous um but i read the mm. follow-up one which is called from here to eternity and it's about like different death um like how different cultures around the world think about death yeah, yeah. I want that. Yeah, it's very cool. Highly recommend. Um, and I also finished writing a fic this week. Um, I wrote a demon AU for Hands of the Emperor. <laughs> the most on-brand Alex thing ever. I'm I'm actually, like, really proud of this. I, I think that, like... It's very soft. It's very like, good. It's, well, it's very soft. And, like, as I was writing it, like, the sort of literary analysis that I was doing through this fic, I was like, I really, really like this thing that I'm doing. Um, so I'm very proud of that. And I think that's about it. Should we have an episode? Macy has a small oh, poem Macy. announced. Yes, 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 because yes. I, I hadn't had... scrolled down far enough in the dark. Ah, <laughs> yes, which is I have a poem that has come out from Reckoning uh, last month that I'm very proud of that I wrote at the very beginning of the lockdown in Seattle way back in March 2020 called Letters from the Eads. Um, and yeah, I very rarely talk about my poems on here because it Here's feels the thing. kind of fake. Here's the thing. Every time you talk about your poetry, you say, I don't really talk about my poetry. I do I think that like you actually... I feel like I shouldn't talk about my poetry. I feel <laughs> like I shouldn't. Um, it feels like admitting to being a poet is shameful. 
Uh, do you think you're going to okay. spontaneously grow some kind of hat and like it feels pick like up being smoking that guy French at the party cigarettes. with the guitar? Yeah. You know? Here's the thing, though. You're not a guy, which is the crucial difference. <laughs> if you were a guy, you probably shouldn't say that you're a poet. But like, I think at this point, like you have several poems published. I think at yep. this point you can say... You can say that. You don't have to be ashamed of it because it's cool. I don't know that I, I will think manage it's cool. to believe that it's cool. But thank but you I for think trying. I also think me. it's cool. Yes. Damn it, both of you. Outvoted. It's cool. Yep. Macy's a poet. One. We're very proud God of her and it. we think it's neat. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, let's have a different topic, please. Because yes. this is about the authorial life, not the yep. glamorous poetic life. Well, so let's move the fuck on. Is there a difference? <laughs> please go ahead. Yes. Uh, people pay authors sometimes. Um, ooh, ooh, ooh. Burn. Ouch. <laughs> I think everybody involved in that though. sentence just got burned. Mm. <laughs> nice one. Listen, if it's self-inflicted, it's okay. Take that's it away. Self-harm, and that's what poets are for. Anyway, um, we are starting off today's episode on the entire concept of the industry of books mm-hmm. um, with a delightful romantic k-drama called romance is a bonus book and specifically we are tent polling episode five um i accidentally watched all of them because it is so charming so lovely as a show i have watched the first six anyway i'm going to Mm. keep watching the rest of it but like it's very lovely um they have very good faces and they all have very like poignant stories yeah. Um, but this is the story of a 37-year-old divorced uh, mother who has gotten to a point in her life where she is basically homeless and is hunting frantically for any job at all and manages to find a job at her childhood best friend's publishing firm. And uh, episode five involves... So she has to pretend that she has no work experience and no degree in order to get the lowest possible job on the totem pole because nobody would hire her for her qualifications as a 37-year-old who hasn't been in work for a decade. Mm. So she's running around serving people coffee and doing the dry cleaning and stuff like that. But in episode five, she has managed to volunteer this marketing scheme for this really cool new book that's about to come out only at the last possible moment, the author phones them up and is like, I have changed my mind. I regret everything. Cancel the publication. I do not wish to be seen. Yeah. <laughs> Which is excessively, excessively I, amazing. I was I, like, that happened. And I was like, is that even allowed? I was like, surely there's like, something in the contract about that. <laughs> surely you can't just cancel the contract. Even if you pay back the advance, surely you can't do that. <laughs> I don't know. I do I don't not know. know. I mean, also, it's like Korean book publishing might be different to Western book publishing, but it's there's a lot true. of things in the show where you look at it and you're kind of like, I don't, I don't quite think that's, I don't, I don't think that's how that. Okay. Yeah, because the issue here is like, is this a, is this a difference in how publishing works for in America versus in uh, Korea, or is it the thing that happens with? many TV shows and movies about the right. writing life where it's skewed because maybe film people don't entirely well, understand how publishing also works. Also because maybe publishing how it actually works is just a little bit too boring. A little bit too boring. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's also could possibly an issue of the drama. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are a lot of things about this publishing house that I'm like, really? Because, you know, the head, the head editor is also, is someone who is headhunted into the position because of his book. 
books. I'm like, that's a different skill set. Like it really is. And he still is this incredibly popular writer while also being the head of editorial at this publishing house and has time to go on a road trip with two other people to try and wrench wrench permission to publish this manuscript out of an author. The trope we should we should have had bingo cards, right? It's the trope <laughs> yeah, where yeah. someone from your publisher shows up unannounced at your house just to and check on how the book creep. is doing. <laughs> right. Just to check to, because they want to see how the book is doing or for reasons that is. And has then never they like happened. camp on his porch in like outside. Because <laughs> they don't have fire? other jobs. <laughs> as, as if they don't have dozens of emails to or answer. Lives. <clears throat> or lives, yeah. yes. Anyway. <laughs> No one in this no one in this show has a life that is not wrapped up in the publishing mm. house. But I really love about well, this as a show is that it does a lot of that sort of romanticization and glorification of books and what they can do to people's lives, but yeah. it also mm. likes to show how some of that romanticization gets stamped out of interns. Like my favorite <laughs> scene in the entire series is the one where they get oh, yes. taken to the pulping house. To see yes. what happens to the yes. remaining books, and they all have this so traumatized sad. look on their face. They're like, "No, they're killing the books." Like, this is what happens when nobody them. buys the books. So go do your jobs, <laughs> so people why buy you the have books. To do your jobs better. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think that oh, being in the publishing industry has actually like given me like less of a respect for the book as the physical object because mm. like the first time that your publisher sends you your author copies and that means that they send you a box of your own books and there's like 30 copies and you're like mm. what the fuck am i and going then you're to do Alex, so you turn 30 them into copies clothing. and you make shoes <laughs> No, I didn't. I didn't turn them into into shoes or clothing. That was because Nava had um, test copy, like proof copies of just the cover printed. So um, all of my author copies kept their covers, and I still have a huge stack of the the proof copies of the cover that they printed to test. Anyway, back to the actual episode. <laughs> but I did like one of the things that it really emphasizes is that the success or failure of the book doesn't only fall on the author, right? Mm. It has this impact on not only the purchasing editor of that specific book, but on the what the whole publishing house can do from that. Because one of the things with this um, publishing company is that they're fairly new and they kind of made their bank by acquiring the editorial rights to a famous author's back catalogue, mm. which is such a publishing thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's like yeah. the Ursula Le Guin reprint, or like now that The Witcher is on TV. What? Who was it in America who got the publishing rights? Was it Orbit? And then they made absolute so. bank on it, and that yeah. means they can go off and buy the weirdo newbie books like ours yeah. and take a risk because they're already making bank. Mm. Yes. Yes. And there is that, and you see yeah. that tension. Like one of the things that I think is quite accurate about this portrayal of publishing is that it's all meetings all the time. So many meetings. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they have these meetings where someone's like, oh, I really want to publish this poet because their poetry is so, you know, meaningful about the human condition. And everyone else is sort of like, oh God, nobody buys poetry. <laughs> Listen, yeah. this is what I'm saying. I'm just saying. Whenever I want to bully my agent, I threaten to send her a poetry manuscript. Mm-hmm. 
Don't do that to poor Kirsten. Don't do that to poor <laughs> Kirsten. Angel, She's some angel hasn't, I will send her a poetry manuscript. Hasn't she been through enough? I um, have more than 60,000 words of poetry, Alex. I have a novel's worth of poetry. Go what you should it. do is format anyway, it like it's a graphic wait, 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 novel wait, wait. script. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Because she has a lot of artists. You could pretend that you've edited a <gasps> graphic on. novel script and it's just a poem that you have split up. Let's... Let's flash back to like five minutes ago when Macy was like, no, I can't possibly claim to be a poet. It's shameful. (laughs) I I didn't say I can't claim to. I just say I always feel vaguely embarrassed by it. And so 60,000 words of poetry, I think, is something. Oh, you're English. And so anyway, what I mean is because I'm embarrassed, I mock myself about it. Okay. I don't understand, and at this point, we're 93 episodes into this podcast, so I don't think that I'm going to. <laughs> Freya does. Um, I, the other thing that I really like about this show, just to sort of wrap up this stop point, and then mm-hmm. I think we'll move on, is that um, like that episode that we watched, number five, really showed how much editors love the books that they're working on, mm. because it's um, the main character's like enthusiasm and passion for this book that this author wrote that convinces him to change his mind again and mm-hmm. and let them publish it. Um, and really, like, a, a really good editor is often, like, your number one champion at the, mm. the publishing house, and I thought that was good representation. Mm. Yeah! That was lovely. <laughs> I feel like they have to love it because they're going to yeah. be reading that bugger, like, dozens of times. Mm. Yeah. Or so at least several. Times. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking, shall we move on to yes, the next one? So I was going to say, speaking Please. of people from the publishing house turning up at your door. <laughs> <laughs> I love her oh, the yeah. best. She's my favorite. So The Second yeah. Temple is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I keep forgetting how much I love it mm-hmm. until I rewatch it. And then I remember it's one of my favorite movies of all time. And this is the film Stranger Than Fiction, mm. which is a odd and very meta film about... <laughs> someone writing a book and someone discovering that they are the main character in that book. And so it stars Will Ferrell in what I think is probably my favorite role I've ever seen Will Ferrell in because he's doing some comedy, but it's mostly like, this is a drama rather than a comedy. And he does an amazing job. And this is also one of my favorite roles for Emma Thompson uh, as the author. Mm. So it's about a man called Harold Mm -hmm. who works for the IRS and one day realizing that his life is being narrated as Lives often are narrated in a certain genre of film, and so you, the the watcher, are not necessarily finding anything unusual about the narration that you're hearing about Harold's life, until he su- you suddenly realise that he can hear it too. And like anybody would, he goes about trying to work out who is narrating his life and why they know things about him that nobody else should know, uh, and he goes and seeks help from a literary professor eventually. <laughs> It's wonderful and discovers that he is in fact the main character in a book being written by a famous author called Karen Eiffel, who is notorious for always killing off her main characters, Uh, which he discovers when he is standing quite innocently by the side of the road in a crowd waiting to cross the road. And the narrator, with he can hear, says, little did he know that this simple action would result in his imminent death. <laughs> Which is basically the. I respect this film so oh, much. Oh, it's amazing! Yeah, yeah. Yes. And you're in from then. Like you're immediately like, oh my god, <laughs> I have to know what's going to happen now. <laughs> He's like, wait, what? So half of it is about Harold and things that are happening in his life, and he's meeting someone and falling in love. And the other half is about Karen Eiffel, who has terrible writer's block, and is attempting to work out how she's going to kill her main character, 
and does indeed have someone sent from the publishing house, who is Queen Latifah, also in an amazing role, whose job it is to wrench her towards finishing this manuscript <laughs> on behalf of the publishing by house. By hook or by crook. I will drag you to museums. I will, like, help you Oh, that, that scene, that scene in the hospital. Where she's yes, like, these like, people, the dying these people uh, are no good to me. I need the ones who are actually dying. So, <laughs> just to give an extra little bit of context to that, because we skipped right over that. There's a scene where Karen Eiffel goes to a hospital to, as quote unquote, research, because she wants to, like, look at dying people to get, like, inspiration for how she might kill Harold Crick. Um... <laughs> And she asks one of the nurses where the dying people are. Yeah. Um, I just like, everyone yeah. in this film has to be so distressing to all the passers-by. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. you've got Harold who's just yelling at the air, like, stop saying things! And we're like, nobody's saying anything, Harold. And then you've Anna got Pascal Callan. is not upsetting. Anna Pascal is great. Anna Pascal is amazing. Anna Pascal is amazing. She, I feel, is, like, distressing to a certain type of person just because leftists are distressing to a certain... So Anna Pascal, the love interest for our tax man, you have to understand, is a charming tattooed waiter... uh, Charming tattooed baker who has deliberately withheld 22% of the taxes that she owes the government of the US as a protest against military spending. (laughs) And is now getting audited and is making her auditor's life hell. And given how much... And also baking him cookies? Given how much is going on in this film, she could so easily (laughs) have been a very narrow character. She could have been really one note. But you really get the sense that she is also the main character of her own story. And she never comes across as just the love interest, which I really liked. And it's Maggie Gyllenhaal who's also incredible in that role. But I think that the thing is that... Her as the choice of love interest for Harold Crick, when you take a step back, says something fascinating about Karen. Because mm. mm. this is a book. The two of them as a romantic pairing is the entire thesis of a book, even though it's only half the movie. And you're like, you believe it. Yes. Because right? it's, it, it's, it's representative of what the tension, like the tension of themes mm-hmm. is, which is this tension between is he in a comedy, which I'm sort of reading as a romantic comedy, or is he in a tragedy? Yeah. And the the film itself, because it is so meta, is constantly playing with that tension as to whether Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. are watching a tragedy or are you watching a romantic comedy? Because the whole idea of this sort of, you know, dropped out of law school to become a baker, you know, outspoken, owns this amazing, it's basically a coffee shop AU in which which the straight-laced tax man who has forgotten how to enjoy his life walks into, that is a rom-com setup. Like that is yep. a fan yep. fiction. Yeah, she's not That's a manic a pixie cute. dream girl. Yeah, yeah. Is the thing. She could so easily have been manic pixie dream girl, but she isn't. Mm, but their love yep. story is yep. a rom com love story, right. and then you have everything else that's going on, and the tension on the tragedy comes from the fact that he's he is in a story that is probably going to end in his death. And I love that the the movie makes yeah. no attempt to explain this at all. In any way. There is no, like, underlying world-building mythos to this. It's just, they both exist in the same world. I think that's he is a character happen. being written by yeah. her. And then he that and then the scene where he finds out where she is and calls the author is so good and so tense. Because you're never quite sure yeah. up to that point. Right. Do they exist in the same reality or not? Right. 
Um, And like the, the movie also has a lot to say about how we consider tragic stories to have more deep literary merit Mm -hmm. um, because like, uh, when when Harold finds out that he's going to die, when he finally gets to talk to Karen, when she gives him her manuscript to read, um, he takes it to uh, the professor, whose name I've forgotten, and says, will you read this for me? And he comes back after the professor has read it and asks him, like, is there any way to change it? Is there any way to save me? And the professor basically says, no, like, to change it to let you live would be to ruin the book because Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. she has written something that is beautiful and meaningful and she has given you a good death and basically like piling all of this literary merit onto it right (laughs) and so we kind of ask like like the movie kind of forces us to ask is a human is one human life worth a great piece of art that is going to possibly change many many people's lives Mm. and I think um, big human life is human life and a piece of art is a piece of art. And then later on, Karen comes and talks to the professor about this when she's trying to decide what to do. I think it's her who says this quote. Um, And she says, if they go to their death knowingly, isn't that the sort of person you want to stay alive? And that is important because she's making a point about the literary merit of her own book only working if he goes to his death unknowingly. Because it's about irony, like the book that she's writing is about that. And she says that, you know, I will now know that that irony is ruined because he's, Mm. if he agrees to be killed off, then it doesn't work anymore. Right. I can't do Mm. that. It doesn't, it doesn't land. And also because of the kind of death, because of the kind of death it was, like he dies saving a small child, like, and if you go to that death knowingly, if you go to that death knowing, like, my death means that someone else will live, like, that's a good person and you want to keep a good person alive as well. Mm. But I think what the movie does very cleverly is that it doesn't quite lead you down one path as to what you want to happen because they do make some good points about the fact that everybody has to die and if you knew mm-hmm. that your death was going to be written to be as meaningful and poetic and poignant as as it possibly could be, wouldn't you want right. that death, even if it came a bit earlier yeah. than you wanted it to? But, oh, yeah, yeah. that's doing a lot with and, story and meaning, <laughs> this film. And I, I think that it also, like there's an element of accepting imperfection, right? Because she chooses to let him live at the end. And she and the the professor, she asks the professor how it is. And he says, it's fine. And she says, you know, I think I'm okay with that. I think I'm okay with just fine. And I think um, it says something interesting in this movie about the degree to which writer's block can sometimes be as much about the author's mental health as Mm. it is about the story in question. Yeah. Right. Um, and so she's been locked she... on this book for 10 years. Mm. Right. And she's like chasing perfectionism. Like she mm-hmm. wants to write the perfect death, the perfect book. And she kind of has to accept that maybe writing a book that's just fine is okay. But also like she, she and... gets, she goes through a little bit of a crisis when she starts thinking, oh my God, I've killed all these people. And I, I killed eight people yeah. and I killed them in these very ironic ways. Good people. And they were good people and, and they're actually dead. But the mental block was happening long before that and you get this sense right. from how the way she behaves and Emma Thompson is just like telling, giving you so much with very little dialogue mm. in terms mm-hmm. of her body language that she's someone who's killed off eight characters that she's starting to become 
unhappy with the kind of writer she is. That mm. she knows she's very good at killing off people, but you get the sense that this dissatisfaction with with Harold Crick's death was there long before he actually yep. you know became aware of his own role. Mm. All right, so moving on to the third tentpole. This is a must-read for every writer, I feel. This is The Unstrung Harp by Edward Gorey. It is a teeny tiny little book. It's like 27 pages long, and half of it is um, illustrations. Uh, so The Unstrung Harp is about Mr. Claudius Frederick Irbras, the well-known novelist. Uh, he is just about to start. He writes one book a year, uh, and he, he starts... Uh, sorry, of alternate years. One book every other year. Uh, and he's yep. just about to start his new novel, which he has decided will be called The Unstrung Harp. Uh, and the, the book goes through like the whole process of, of writing the book <laughs> and um, having visions of your characters appear to I you on the him. stairs. And um, that, that long, dark moment of the soul where... The work is dreadful, 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 dreadful. dreadful. He will burn. Dreadful. He will burn the MS. Why is there no fire? Why aren't there the makings of one? Which I quote extensively every time I have a writer tantrum, and the exhaustion of finishing a draft and finally, and then like one day finally seeing it out the of the humiliation world. of people trying to talk to you about your book. Oh God, yes. Oh. The thing yeah. that I love about this as well, though, is he has a list of titles that he thinks are cool, and every time he just randomly picks a title and mm -hmm. then like reverse retrofits. I mean, look, it, which I respect. Yeah, I I've feel done like that. My thing about songs is not more ridiculous. Yeah, than who that. among us has I not have, listened to Vienna Tan's cool entire discography, <laughs> written down a list of lyrics, and then when the time comes to name a fanfic, turns to the list of yes. Vienna Tang lyrics and gone. Which of you fits today? <laughs> are you are you trying to burn me specifically? <laughs> uh, yes, yes. I mean, I have a list of, of titles. I have like a document of like story ideas and title ideas, and um, none. I went back and reread them recently, and most of them were not very good. But there were a couple in there that were okay. <laughs> The problem is that like you keep getting better and then sometimes when you're getting better you go back to a past thing and you realize how to make it into genius and sometimes yeah. you go back to a past thing and you're like oh I was scribbling with crayons I see yeah <laughs> yeah yeah yes but, but yeah I this just, this uh... book is basically just a very embarrassing sort of experience <laughs> to read it right like it's it's very the mortifying yeah. ordeal of being known is the sensation you get when you read this little book so Freya, this is the first time you've read it, right? How did you find this book? It was completely delightful. And exactly <laughs> as you say, it's just like somebody opening a little grubby window and staring <laughs> through the grubby window into your writing soul, which on the one hand, ouch. And on the other hand, very reassuring to know that this is a universal yes. condition. Like there were some wonderful, wonderful turns of phrase that I wouldn't have thought of before. And obviously this is one of the great things that books can do is to show you little parts of yourself and your process. But the transition of how he feels about his characters, I found particularly lovely that when he's first mm. getting to know them, they exist as a fitful and cloudy reality. Like he can't quite see mm. them clearly. And then they start mm. you know, becoming real people who might appear to you at the top of the stairs when you're kind of sleep deprived. And then by the end of it, <laughs> they feel like you have been trapped at a party with these people for months <laughs> and you are heartily sick of them. <laughs> uh, yes. That, that bit reminded me of Jane Eyre. And the like, uh, why are you still here in mm. this house? Mm. Have you, have you guys ever, I, I don't think that any of us have ever had like visions of our characters appear to us at the top of the stairs, but have you ever had any like weird stuff 
like that happen to you? Like, do you talk to your characters? No. Oh, I definitely talk talk to them. Yeah. Um. They they like argue with me. I argue with them, and I definitely yeah. like make faces like them. And because you've seen me do body language stuff, Alex, I I can shift. I can code switch in my body as well as in my voice, and mm. I will code switch my body language into a particular character's sometimes by accident, uh-huh. and then I'll be like, "Why am I sitting like <laughs> Kiara?" Right. Like, I have my knees spread. That's not a thing that I would ever do. No, I can't say that I talk to my characters. <laughs> I funny. force them to talk to me by writing bits of stuff in their voice if I need to work out their voice. Because it takes me about mm-hmm. the, at least the first third mm. of a book to get a handle on who my characters are. And so sometimes mm-hmm. I will, the way I get them to talk to me is by doing little side scenes or things to work out their voice. Yeah, 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 yeah. But. I don't have arguments with my characters. I just get stuck and then realize it's because I'm trying to make them do something out of character. Mm. But it usually it's because the characters are just characters. What happens is I realize I have been trying to rewrite the same paragraph three times and it's not working. And then I realize the way it's working is because my outline is wrong. Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm. But how yeah. about you, Alex? I, Do you get possessed? I used, I used to talk to my characters more when I was younger than I do now. I mean, every once in a while, like, um, I think the last time that it happened really dramatically was when I was watching Mamma Mia 2 in theaters and um, Ilfing just like appeared in the back of my head and was like, this is the best movie. And I was like, <laughs> oh, he would love that. It's like, okay, he? it's his favorite movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know what um, I'm reminded of as well, though, huh? is the other week when all of us in group chat accidentally ended up like diving into the kinks of our various characters. Oh, yeah. Hmm. That just happened. That I'm like, I like... wasn't thinking about this, but I know all this information. Like, yeah, I, I think yeah. That, that's a different thing. Like like... Characters can become more fully formed when you're not looking. And then you sort yeah. of yeah. look at them yes. and revisit the shape like, that I they are in your head. And you realize that you do know a whole lot of stuff about them because of how fleshed out they've yes. become. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think that it's partially because of fanfic, because like we're used to thinking about mm-hmm. characters on that deeper level and like coming up, like using bits and pieces about them to sort of deduce other things sure. about them. Sure, yeah. sure, 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 sure. I was going to talk about something else in the Unstrung Half that was more to do with the fact of having produced Go a book. It. Because only about half of it is about the writing process, which I was surprised by because I think I'm so used to Alex mm. yelling, dreadful, 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 that I assumed <laughs> the entire book was about the writing process. But it also has mm. delightful little things like going to a bookshop the day that your book comes out yes! and seeing your book in the corner of your eye and making very awkward eye contact with all the other books because you feel weird. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that's so specific and it sounds so real. It's just like, I think it's the specificity Mm. of of this book, which really gets to you because like, there are lots of books about like, oh, the, the, um, dreadful, uh, what is it? The, the unexquisite agony of the writing life. Um, Mm. and, but this one just like picks out like very specific, incisive details, and it's like, I see you. <laughs> Wasn't it the bit when he was like in the bath, like mulling things over? Mm. Yeah. Do you mull in the bath? I mull on my runs. Mm. I definitely, I, I definitely runs. mull in the shower, which is terrible as an mm-hmm. Australian because you're not allowed to have long showers. So I like get mid mull yeah. and then be like, shit, I need to turn the water off. <laughs> oh. I find I. <laughs> I just realized recently that I mull quite successfully when I'm on long drives. Um, mm, in, in a way, long drive. yeah, in a way that doesn't happen 
with other things. Like mm. I don't, I don't particularly mull in the shower or the bath, and um, sometimes I mull a little bit when I'm like cooking. But usually my attention well, actually, is on that. I mull, I mull more on long walks. I have epiphanies in the shower. Mm. Mm. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and take notes, and sometimes I remember in the morning, and other times I don't. Which is how I came to have an email from myself in my inbox that I don't remember writing with the opening lines of a new novel that I know nothing about. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, but why? When was this? Nighttime Macy this has was... started a novel. Nighttime Macy has started a novel. Let's see what it says. Uh, nope, I've lost it. I didn't even It's a it little it's bit gone. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but in a good way. <laughs> well, I did this with the Gothic as well, and I think I pasted some of those into group chat. I, just mm. asleep, Macy just doesn't sleep very well. She just yeah. wakes up and writes books instead. Yeah, and then erases all memory. Cool. Very good. Yeah. Fine. Well, we have a we have an honorary fourth tent. Paul, shall we, we move on to that one? Yeah. Yes, I wanted us to in- squeeze this one in because it is a very teensy tiny little tentpole. And this is a short story by Ken Liu, which does appear in the anthology that I was talking about at the beginning of mm-hmm. the episode. And this is a short story called The Bookmaking Habits of Select Species. And as short stories go, this one is much more of a collection of little vignettes than an mm-hmm. actual story. And it reminded me a lot of Space Opera by Catherine Valenti. I was just thinking that. Because while space Mm. opera is a meditation on what would different alien species consider to be music, this one is what Mm. would some strange non-human species consider to be books. So this is is an example of the speculative genre doing books rather than books doing the speculative genre, which I quite liked. Because it... They're very strange as well. They're very strange. Oh yeah, it's about like how do Mm. we code knowledge? And what does it Mm. mean to read a book? And what is... A book, and and I also really that love... incisive, also that incisive detail about uh, like that one alien species who um, they have arguments over like what the original text was like because um, it's recorded through their writing is is sound like a like they the play it basically. the phonograph right 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 and so every time you read the book you destroy it just a little bit more and so the wax degrades right right and so they they have arguments about like what the original text was like because there's all these knockoffs and recreations now and of course each of them is going to be degraded a little bit and, and a little bit different from all the others fascinating and that made me think a little bit about real fairy tales um oral tradition fairy tales and mm. the ways things get passed from hand to hand like i think we talked about in our bards episode a bit as well the way that communal storytelling manipulates and leaves like watermarks on the stories Mm. and i think my Mm, my favorite vignette is the one about the species that thinks everything is a book and you can read anything in the universe and the ultimate experience is to read a black hole which are the best books of all and the closer you get to one the more time slows down so at the end you are eternally reading the best book in the world and there's this little aside that like some other species think that these people are talking bullshit and are hiding themselves in mysticism and i was like that sounds like book discourse Uh, (laughs) honestly uh, don't we all want to be reading the best book forever but i mean the idea of what is a book there is still discourse about that like oh do you like ebooks or real books audiobooks does that count as reading the children are reading comic books that's not really reading you know, the idea of what really counts as a book and what counts as reading is still, Nouns are is fake. still a question There's no somehow. such thing as a book. There's nothing. Books don't exist. They <laughs> yeah. were fake all along. It's fine. Let's well, move I on. mean, the reason yeah. I like that is because all the tent poles that we've talked about um, 
are into this idea of book as physical object and the romanticization mm-hmm. of that. Like in well, sort of. Well, in ro- not the movie. Well, even in the movie, like she writes the book. She typewrites. She That's and then she true. handwrites and and it's not and it's not real until she types it. Yeah, it doesn't mm-hmm. exist until because she outlines the thing. until she's typed yeah. it. Yeah, until like because his his ending is not set in stone when she handwrites mm. it. It's only set in stone when she and types even like it. romance okay. is a bonus yep. book, which is you know set in a modern publishing industry, has some episodes of authors mm-hmm. who still write things, um, and the idea of like going to pick up the manuscript and the manuscript existing <laughs> and the idea that you could burn your manuscript as in the unstrung harp like no. there's you know there's a lot of that in books older books about writers like in little women where joe yeah. joe is writing and amy burns her book which is like the one copy of it that exists and no. there's something that's very primal for writers of the idea of your book only existing in one form and so you could, mm-hmm. in a fit of pique, throw it out the window or burn it or send it off to some, somewhere else. And it, and that's mm-hmm. the only way in which it exists. And that's where this kind of like the book as precious object comes from. Yeah. Dear listeners, this is your official reminder to go back up your work right now. <laughs> Pause the podcast. Go back up your work. And when we say back up your work, we mean onto a physical object that is not your computer or the internet. Yes. Mm. Your yes. friendly neighborhood internet reliability engineer <laughs> is now waving a tiny flash drive at the camera in today's mandatory excerpt of Bad Radio. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Macy. <laughs> but you know, the whole <laughs> At least I narrated it. The book, you did. The book industry these days is endlessly uh... sending attachments to emails emails whereas it used to be you know if you were querying you would have to if you were querying agents you would have to print out many copies of your manuscript and include a self-addressed envelope so it could be sent back to you self-addressed stamped stamped envelope imagine how much you're spending on stamps oh god well we are now moving on to our authors and publishing in fiction versus real life section yes. in which we yell about email latency because <laughs> oh my god can we please get read receipts on emails to our agents and editors and publishers because i don't know if that would help the anxiety or worsen it well i feel like there are probably some yeah. agents and editors out there who wish that? the same thing for some of their authors that's true that is entirely valid but it's like are they not answering because they haven't seen it or are they not answering because they hate me Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think like at least 90% of the writing career is waiting for emails. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yep. Well, okay. The like other half- 70% is waiting for email. 20% is like anxiously rewriting an email that you're not sure you should send. Yes. yes. And, yes. and the last yes. 10% yes. is lying yes. on the floor moaning <laughs> dreadful, dreadful about your own book. Yep. That's yep. it. Correct. Yep. Yep. Correct. I tried Correct. lying on my dining table the other week. How was that? Variety. It was uh, quite good, but worrying. <laughs> Okay. I mean, there, there is. Did like, it help? If you wiggle too much, you fall off, right? And that's like worse sure. than a carpet. There is that's, quite a bit of that. that a, in... That's a, a good quality of floors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah floors are There's great. a lot of lying on tables in Stranger Than Fiction. Karen Eiffel does a lot of lying on her table and staring at the ceiling and smoking. Yeah, that's true. And yeah. somehow. Don't take up smoking. No, somehow it does fit with what we think of as what authors do. You're like, mm, that's mostly right. Yeah. The lying, the lying <laughs> on the table staring at the ceiling part is right. <laughs> Why why does it take so much melodrama and like emotional turmoil I to write a book? I do not know, but it does. I do not know why, but it does. Yeah. 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 Um but and also like 
Let's talk about that trope that we kept talking about earlier. Why hasn't my agent and or editor arrived unannounced at my house, quote, just to drop off some groceries? Oh, by the way, how is the book going? Okay, the reason (laughs) that trope exists, I think, is because we all, the people creating the stories, who are mostly writers, have this fantasy that the power in the relationship should be Mm. with you as the writer and you should be the treasured object from whence all the wonderful stuff comes, and it, and you, and everyone else should be like, and everyone should be supp- supplicating supporting you, and you, and, you know, and really wanting this Maybe. book from you. And wouldn't that be nice if that was the way it went instead of the author being like the person at the bottom of the pile? <laughs> Maybe they Sending think that it's how that. Maybe they think that literary agents are how film agents work. Because film agents, like, I feel like they call you on the phone to, like, tell you about things more often. Hmm, I feel maybe. like that's more about phone calls than emails. I feel also, though, there's a thing where, like, if you're in the publishing industry, you're either in London or you're in New York. Mm. Or I guess you're in Seoul if you're in the Korean one. But if you're an English yeah. one, everybody lives in London. Mm. If you're in an American one, everyone lives in New York. And so they can. Yeah. Whereas, like, I think the closest we could do here is, like... Isn't your agent Seattle-ish? So My agent Alex. lives like three blocks away from you, yeah. Amazing. So Alex <laughs> could get their agent to stalk me. And yes. we could probably get like mine and Freya's agent to take a road trip to stalk Alex and it wouldn't be like obscenely ridiculous. I was, I was texting with Freya's agent last summer about possibly like having a visit to hang out sometime. But, I, I, I occasionally chill with Freya's nobody, agent. <laughs> nobody can go pester Freya in nope. person. Which is it's true. Well, she's safe. <laughs> I was a well-renowned author whose manuscript was five years late. Nobody is going to fly to Australia and land on my doorstep and try and wrench it out of me. They'd have to get Sam Hawke to do it. I don't think that Sam would like... Is Sam more aligned to her agent or to you? Like, Where does the loyalty lie? Hmm. So you're thinking my agent would be like getting Sam on board? Hmm. No, uh-huh. I think I, I think I could uh, manage that situation. Sam would show up, and I'd be but like, "Oh, what if I'll Diana got Sam's agent? What if Diana got Sam's agent to set Sam? Anyway, dear listeners, <laughs> anyway, this anyway is live in Australia. Work. You will never yes. be harassed by your agent or editor in person, just by email. But there are spiders there. Yep. Yes. But it's true. But like the whole idea. It's also, speaking of agents. Seagulls. Australians don't understand seagulls. Very distressed by seagulls. What do you mean we don't understand seagulls? We understand them. We have a healthy respect and fear for them, as is normal. (laughs) You showed up at Dublin and were deeply distressed that there were knee-high seagulls. Yeah, your your seagulls are abnormally large. They're not a normal. They're They're not not a normal seagull size. I'm going to. I'm going to forcibly get us back on track for this episode. What are some of? What is? Tell me about the best part of having a literary agent, which is not okay. The second best part is they sell your book and get you a lot of money, and they're great. We love our. The best part, we love our agents. We do pat you on your head when you're feeling anxious and help give you like reasonable expectations. That's very good. Yeah. And sometimes you send them like weird questions about like what would my career like what would be the bad things that would happen to my career if I did this and they what if I started writing mysteries instead what if I wrote only literary fiction what if I decided to go for more of a hybrid publishing model and like self-publish some things would that be allowed and then they like send you back absolutely like serious reasonable answers and you're like oh thank you for the information they are fonts of good information but is that the best part I feel like that's the third best part what's the best part (laughs) Alex is dragging me for having put in our dot points the quote the real best part of having a literary agent colon all caps 
hot, hot gossip. gossip. <laughs> I mean, not yeah. untrue. Not agents Freya's, know everything. Agents do know everything. Diana Gosh. knows everything. Yes, my agent yes. Diana does know everything. <laughs> Diana is. Yeah. A, it, Diana will send you like arcs all of the time. That's true. Which that's is I was going to say like the second best part for me beyond you know having thoughts about my career and editing my books is yeah. all the arcs. All the arcs. Arc being all advanced retail copies. Advanced reviewer advanced copies. Reader copies. Advanced reviewer. Or, advanced. It's either advanced yeah, reviewer copies or advanced reader books. copies, depending on whichever. It's books yeah. that they send you before the book is published for free, and it's amazing. It's one of the best perks. It's the. I was about to say it's the best perk of the publishing industry. <laughs> yes. It is yes. good. It just does mean so, that you have a TBR full of things that have already come out. TBR full of things mm, that are yes, just coming yes. out. And yep, then you have exactly. your yep. secret special TBR of stuff that hasn't come out yet, which you somehow feel that you have to get to before it comes out in order yep. to show your gratitude for having been given and it early. And then you get to, like, the yes. weird situation that we're in where we've, like, all got this book and we've read it and we planned an episode for it. And then we're like, fuck, when does it actually come out? We cannot release <laughs> an episode featuring this book when the book does not exist yet. That's not fair on anyone. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> not fair on the no. audience, the readers. No, the not list- fair on the author. On the author. They want to sell yeah. the book. And if it's not out yet, any bump of interest that we create won't yeah. And it's one of those small things where there is a slight aspect of glamour to the authorial life because mm. most of it is sitting mm. around for emails and i wanted to mention the only other i suppose tv show that really focuses on the publishing industry and glamour that i've read that i've read that i've seen uh which is younger <laughs> taken in and younger is a tv okay. show that actually has a lot in common with romance is a bonus book in that it is about a 40 year old woman who is a single mom and has been out mm-hmm. of the workforce for a long time and has to go and get a job in the publishing industry in new york and cannot get a job because she is too old. Because all mm-hmm. of the things that she is qualified for are entry level, and they assume she knows. Yep. If she is 40, she will not know enough about the market. She will not know about comp titles. She will not know anything about social media and how to market. <sighs> and so she pretends to be in her early 20s. And she is played by Sutton Foster, who is abnormally gorgeous and can just get away with pretending to be in her early <laughs> 20s. Uh, but she is, yeah, basically perpetrating this pretense that she is much younger than she is Mm. and Mm. it's about her colleagues and friends at the publishing house and it's about 50 percent oh yes it's all glamorous lunches in new york and everyone can uh, you know afford uh, has enough money to do this oh the yeah Yeah. but 50 percent of it is quite spot on like one of them Hmm. you know starts dating this person who really just wants her to read his manuscript and she doesn't know what to do when his manuscript is terrible and she feels mm, awful about ouch. it, but, but but he really wanted her to read the manuscript. And it also does this very specific skewering of George R. R. Martin in that there is a character who belongs to this publishing house who writes these very famous fantasy books. And like the way they mm-hmm. visually style this character, it is very uh, obvious. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and he takes a shine to Sutton Foster's character because he's like, oh, you look just like this elf queen that I imagined. And so okay. the publishing house is like, great, he likes you. Go and get the next book out of him. And she's like, oh, God. <laughs> oh That's very funny. So it's like 50% funny. stuff that is actually quite reasonable and good skewering of the publishing industry and 50% things that are just too glamorous because it's television. But it's yeah. enjoyable. Yeah. Well, 
we, we've all we've all heard the story. There's a, a senior editor who once had a manuscript passed to her under the door of a bathroom stall mm-hmm. while she was using said bathroom stall. Uh, uh, it's just like could, uh, could basically. Just Authors are terrible gremlins and should yes. never be allowed out in public. Not in public. No, not allowed. Ever, terrible. ever. It's this is a podcast because you can't see us. It's sure. I was also <laughs> going to be. I was also going to say this is also why agents are such a good idea because they're yes. gremlin wranglers. Yes. <laughs> they are. Especially. They are like. They are like the dog walker with twelve dogs on a leash, and all of yeah. the dogs are God. chihuahuas and your God bless the agents. Um, Seriously. You had a but question, Macy. Macy has a plaintive question because right. Macy, again, is a gremlin who has not read anything in literature mm-hmm. ever. I'm allergic to literature. Um, I would yes. like to plaintively ask whether either of you have actually read the apocryphal quote-unquote literary novel about an author who is either sad, midlife crisis, a professor, having an affair, or any of the above. So yes. the one that I have read that most fits this is one that is kind of skewering it at the same time. And that is... Mm. This is the thing. I only hear about the ones that are mocking it, not the ones well, that are Well, I think I didn't it. enjoy it as much as I wanted because it spent too much time being the thing and not quite enough ah. time skewering the thing. And that mm. is The Sea, The Sea by Iris Murdoch, which is a very literary novel about... Uh, okay. I think he's a playwright rather than a novelist. But he is a playwright and director who goes through this midlife crisis and (laughs) moves to a seaside town and discovers a person that he had this like semi relationship with and has like idealized and romanticized in his head. Mm. And yeah, I can't remember a lot about it. I did read it a while ago, but it was very clearly doing a thing with that, you know, midlife crisis professor thing, but it was not quite doing it enough. It was, it was being it a bit too much. (laughs) The the one that best fits it for me, I'm having war flashbacks as I'm talking about this right now. Uh, in my last semester of college, I had to take a senior seminar for the Capstone Project, which is like a mini dissertation at my mm-hmm. alma mater. Um, and one of the the one that I took was a creative writing senior seminar. And mm-hmm. one of the other people in that class was a young gentleman who was writing a novel about a sad writer boy who literally oh. lived in a garret and typed on a typewriter even though it was set in the modern era and did he fall in love with a a dying prostitute he fell in love with a manic pixie dream girl who worked at the local i can't remember if it was the local coffee shop or the local bookstore one of those uh i think there were some elements of magical realism but it was mostly about like how sad he was and writing his novel and how he like gave a couple chapters to this girl uh that he was secretly had like a huge crush on and she fell madly in love with him because the writing was just so good Mm. and um it was terrible and bad one day one day i will write this book this will be macy's seminal work of male focused fiction Mm -hmm. uh (laughs) so to speak Uh, and it will take place on a remote scottish island where the writer has gone after some unspecified terrible uh, mm. rumor that's gone around and ruined his life and he will fall for this woman who it will turn out is a I was going to say does, does this it's end with good. him being killed by magical creatures yes because it sounds like yes, it, it probably does. would yes, that's very does. good that's very good this is the only way I'm going to ever do literature <clears throat> uh, I think I think we have time for one more question uh-huh so why would our characters be trying to track us down and complain if they were going if to? If they discovered that they were main characters in one of our if stories. They, yeah. Yes. St- if if it was like a stranger than fiction situation. 
my characters, I always, I always fuck them up by like who they are intrinsically. And mm. I can't imagine that they'd be able to be mad at me about that, you know? Because you yeah. can't, it feels like you, you wouldn't be able to do that. Like be mad about someone for who they've created you. Like Kiara is fucked up because of the situation with her magic and her personality. Yeah. Not because of plot. I don't know. I feel like yeah. you could be mad at an author about that. You could be like, this is mm. not my fault. You made me this way. I guess. Why did you have to okay, make me? Freya, why would yours be mad? I don't know. This is why I wrote this question because I wanted you to answer it. Because I'm not quite <laughs> sure why my characters would be trying to track me down and complain. Possibly the injuries thing. You keep them. You keep them. <laughs> you do keep wounding them before I they do fuck. keep injuring it's, them. A, I, I was do gonna like injuring. Never let them have sex well. until they're bleeding, Freya. I was going to say. I was going to say. Like you keep them from having sex for too long, even though when they really, true. really want to. That's true. Um, too many injuries uh, and yeah. too much slow burn. Okay. Because Alex thing, makes them the, sad. I I do make my sad boys sad, but I think that like. The things that my characters would yell at me about are the things that my beta readers have also yelled at me about, and then I undid it. For example, the time that I almost killed off Tadek because I thought that it was going to be like deep literary merit to whatever, blah, 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 whatever. I'm so over that. I'm never going to write a literary novel again, and I don't want to. Like, I just want to write things with good vibes from now on. Um, and no plot whatsoever. No plot, only vibes. No plot, only vibes. Hello everybody, thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. We had a really good time with the temp polls and discussion this week, because authors, unsurprisingly, are self-obsessive and self-reflective creatures, in the way that every sort of artist is, really. And to be honest, I think every book written about writers, and you can find them in every genre, I'm going to particularly say I liked Tia Williams' recent literary romance, Seven Days in June, and I know that Emily Henry's rom-coms about authors are also very popular. So every book written by and about a writer is a fantasy of some kind. Maybe it's the fantasy of personal fame and success. Maybe it's the fantasy that the publishing industry is a bit more logical instead of being a magical fairy court of luck and arcane ritual. I think, personally, I'd definitely like to see more sci-fi or fantasy starring writer characters, though I suppose half the effort would go into getting them out the front door to begin the quest. I think we seem to make better side characters, there to provide all the snarky commentary and all the meta. Anyway, for the next episode, two weeks hence on September 8th, pack your basket of goodies and get ready for the trip to Grandmother's house, because we are heading into the woods. We're talking about forests and nature and all of the dangers and wonders that go along with them in fiction. One of our temples is the novella Silver in the Wood by Emily Tesh, if you want to check that one out. Or if you want an excuse to re-check it out, as I'm pretty sure we've enticed plenty of our darling listeners to read that one before now. Questions? Comments? Breathless adulations? You can get in touch with us at serpentcast at gmail.com, and we're at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr. And if you enjoy the podcast and would like to support us further, you can also find our Patreon at patreon.com slash serpentcast, or consider leaving us a rating and a review on iTunes so we can continue to reach new listeners. And by the way, they say everyone has a book inside them, and I can just make out the outline of yours. It's pretty amazing. You should write it. <laughs>